Uh, Leviticus chapter 4, and we come to the fourth of five main offerings in the book of Leviticus uh, that we're looking at over the uh, the last few weeks. Uh, It's it's a long passage. It might be worth just giving you a heads up as we dive in uh, to say that you'll you'll notice a lot of repetition, okay? Uh, And it's worth, as I read through, trying to spot where the repetition comes and also where the theme varies. So the way the passage works is it deals with um, different people who have to offer the same offering, what the, this version calls the sin offering. So what happens when a priest sins? Then what happens if it's the whole congregation? What happens if it's um, a sort of tribal leader? What happens if it's just an individual? And you'll see as we read through, some things are the same and some things differ. Okay, so just a bit of a heads up to keep your eyes open for that uh, as we read from uh, the word of our God. So Leviticus 4 and verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any of one of them, if it's the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sins that he's committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that's in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them and the loins and the long lobe of the liver. And he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap. And shall burn it on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. Verses 13 to 21 deal about the sin of the congregation. And it's fundamentally the same as what we've seen uh, so far. So we're going to pick up uh, the reading at verse 22. Speaking about a, a tribal leader. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done. And realizes his guilt or the sin which he's committed is made known to him. He shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin and he shall be forgiven. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realises his guilt, or the sin which he's committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female, without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. 
and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish, and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill it for a sin offering, in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out all of the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offering. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him, for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, we think of the words of the psalmist. Uh, that uh, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and that it's more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. Father, as he wrote, he had these words of Moses, this book of Leviticus in mind, as much as he did Genesis uh, or Exodus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, this Torah, this law that you've given your people. And so we pray this morning we would taste the sweetness of your word as it reveals Christ to us. And might we value it as more than gold in our sight. Do this, we pray, for Jesus' namesake. Amen. Uh, in chapter 4 of Leviticus, we're getting to the stage where you just might be beginning to feel a bit crushed, uh, a bit weighed down. Uh, it's just getting into that kind of part of the book where this number of sacrifices are building up and you're beginning to get a little bit lost and it sort of sounds a bit like what happened in one of the early ones, I think, but I'm not too sure. Is this really any different? Can't we just say Jesus died for our sins and have done with it? But there's a reason God gave us the fullness of the book of Leviticus. There's a reason he spoke about all five of these offerings because each of them just gives a different angle on the work of Christ. Uh, although they're all connected, although they all point forward to him, as we'll see later, uh, they shine a light on Jesus fr- from a different angle. Okay, it's a bit like a-, a diamond. You can sort of turn it around and examine it from all sorts of different angles and see new things. Uh, and today, really very simply, uh, I want to look at two things. I want to look about, talk about sin and then talk about spiritual cleansing. Okay, those are the two big things I think this offering teaches us about. It teaches us something about sin and something about spiritual cleansing. So let's dive in and think about sin first. And the big thing that comes across as you read about the sin offering is that sin varies in, sin, in seriousness, but it always stains us. Okay? Sin varies in seriousness, but it always stains us. It's common to hear uh, that... All sin is the same, isn't it? Have you heard people say that? Look, all sin is the same. It's all disobedience to God. It all makes you guilty. So all sin is exactly the same. But I don't think the Bible teaches that. And Leviticus 4 shows us two ways that the seriousness of sin varies. There are actually more ways in the Bible, because there's all sorts of ways that the seriousness varies. But, but Leviticus 4 has got two in mind in particular. First of all, the seriousness of your sin depends on who you are. Okay, it depends on who you are. Did, did you see as we went through, that depending on who it was who committed the sin, they had to sacrifice a different animal. So verse 3, if it's the anointed priest who sins, now that might be the high priest, or it might just mean any priest. Anointed means they've had oil poured on them. So it's unclear quite whether it's just the very high priest or all of them. But either way, if it's a priest who sins, what do they have to bring? Children, can you see what they have to sacrifice in verse 3? What animal is it? 
Can you see what animal it is? Someone discover it for me. Three, two, one. Yeah, what is it? A bull. Brilliant. If he's the priest, it's a bull. Okay? Now, that's really expensive. Okay? That's a sort of king animal. That's a really big sacrifice. And it's the same if the whole congregation sins, as we'll see below. But if you look down to verse 22, if it's a leader, so perhaps a tribal leader, someone in charge of you know, the Benjaminites, or even someone just in charge of a clan, a sort of smaller group, like a kind of village leader, as it were, well, if he does something wrong, what does he have to offer? Verse 23, it's not a bull, is it? But it's a goat, a male goat, very specifically. And if in verse 27, you're just a commoner, just a, you know, also just a bog standard Israelite, like you and me, okay, the plebs, what do they have to do? Well, they sacrifice, verse 28, a goat as well, but this time a female. A female goat is less valuable than a male goat okay, in breeding. That, you know, if you want to produce good cows or sheep or whatever, you want the sort of the male, the stud male, so they're more expensive. The female is the least, and a goat is less valuable than a, well, a bull. All the way down we can go, uh, eventually uh, offering, if we'd read on and on, we'd eventually find that Sometimes you can just offer grain. It really does get lower and lower and lower. Depending on who you are, your sacrifice was more or less valuable, expensive, because the seriousness of your sin was more or less significant. You see, if the priest sins, the high priest sins, well, in verse 3, he brings guilt on the whole people. There's a trickle-down effect. It's just, the, say, the high priest who sinned, but his guilt kind of affects everybody. You often see that in the Bible. God appoints uh, what are called kind of covenant head figures. It might be the king. In this case, it's the high priest. We'll talk about others in a minute. And their sin, because they're responsible for other people, has this kind of trickle-down effect. That's why it's more serious than if you're just a kind of little pleb here at the bottom of the pile. I'd also... Uh, you might have seen, um, it also varies in that where the blood is taken changes. So if you're the high priest, it gets taken into the tabernacle. Hopefully you've all got one of those little pictures of the tabernacle um, uh, that Quiz made earlier. They're very helpful for just visualising what's going on. Uh, the animal is sacrificed at what's called the, off, the, the burnt altar. Have we got those? They've been given out? Okay, someone's going to run around with those very quickly. Um, thank you, two, two will be well enough. Uh, the, the animal is sacrificed at the burnt offering okay, altar which is in the courtyard, but if you're a high priest, the blood is taken into the, the tabernacle proper, okay, into the holy place and sprinkled there. Whereas again, if you're just a commoner, the blood stays out in the kind of less holy place, out of the courtyard. Even if you've committed the same sin, it's the same sin being committed, but who is committing the sin makes it more or less serious. The same thing, but the different person is doing it. So it's a bit like this. Um, again, children, Im- uh, imagine, okay, imagine someone, imagine you've forgotten someone's birthday. Okay, forgot to get them a birthday present. Okay, if it's your colleague, okay, uh, children, you have colleagues, you know what I mean? Think of grown-ups. Okay, <laughs> if it's a colleague, someone they work with, okay, if dad forgets someone who, who, who he works with birthday, it's not that serious, is it? Okay, if he forgets the birthday of the guy he sits next to, then he'll just say, look, Hey, I'm really sorry. Let me buy you a drink. Now, if he forgets his sister's birthday, it's a bit more serious, isn't it? He's going to get in a bit more trouble if he forgets his sister's birthday. He's probably going to have to buy a dinner. I'm really sorry. Let me take you out for a pizza. If he forgets his wife's birthday, he's in all sorts of trouble, isn't 
If he forgets mummy's birthday, he's all sorts of trouble. He's going to have to take her away for the weekend, you know, take her to a spa. It's going to be a costly mistake. It's the same thing, just forgetting a birthday, but who you are, okay, whether you're just a friend or whether you're a brother, whether you're a husband, makes the sin more serious. There's a little life lesson for you husbands on the way. And this principle does continue throughout the Bible. Think of the book of James. In James chapter 3, James says this, Not many of you should presume to become teachers, as pastors, brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It is, it is a scary thing standing here, frankly, knowing that you'll be judged with greater strictness. You can sort of see why, because the ministers who speak and preach week by week by week have a huge effect. It matters. And if, if, we, uh, if we go wrong, either in what we say or in how we live, just start setting the kind of example that kind of lowers the bar of holiness and that filters out in the congregation, that is a hugely serious thing. It's the kind of thing that you can sort of imagine, particularly English people, all a bit gauche. We, English ministers are maybe not very good at speaking about this kind of thing. But, but it's really important that you pray for the leaders of your churches, elders. God willing, in time, we'll raise up other elders. Pray for their purity in their life. Pray for their teaching and preaching. Pray that God would protect and sustain them. Ministers fall all the time. Okay, you, if you've been in church for any amount of time whatsoever, you will probably know some minister who's ended up having an affair or just giving up or whatever it might be, heading off into sort of false teaching. Perhaps you've had a, a guy who used to read their books when you were at youth camp and now you've realised he doesn't even believe the gospel anymore. It's those sort of things that happen all the time. There is a, a Bible principle. Jesus says in, in Luke 12, everyone to whom much was given, much will be required, much will be expected. And that's true for all of us. I mean, the more that God feeds you with his word, the more you're expected to respond But let me speak to two categories of people in, in, in particular. I talked earlier about the high priest being the sort of the, the head, the, the covenant head, as it were, and, and his sin trickled down to other people. Two other covenant head positions in the Bible are that of husband and father. As a husband and a father, you, you lead the marriage, that you are given headship, to use the language of Ephesians 5. And so there is a sense in which you in particular are called to be setting a, a godly example to the rest of the family. It's not that it doesn't matter for everybody else. It's not that it doesn't matter if wives sin or children. Of course it does. But there's an extra responsibility on those who are called to lead in those settings. I think one of the reasons that the Bible talks about this variety and the seriousness of sin, depending on our position, is just to remind us that when we are given positions of responsibility, our holiness does matter. And as life goes on, it tends to be you're given more, you know, as you're a child, you've only got one or two things to concentrate on, obey mummy and daddy, that kind of thing. Uh, you grow up, you're a single man, you, you're a woman, you're learning to live and you're, you're an adult now, so you take responsibility for your sin. Then you get married and suddenly if you're the husband, you've got someone to care for and, 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 and look after. And then you have kids, you've got more people to look after. And then perhaps as you, you get older, you get asked to lead a small group at church or you become an elder, whatever it might be, it tends to be responsibility goes up. This passage reminds us that so therefore does our responsibility and our accountability for sin. But not only does the seriousness of sin vary depending on who you are, it also depends on what you do. It can be more or less serious depending on what you do. And in some cases, in some ways, that's just instinctively obvious, isn't it? We know that it is worse to murder 
than to lie. Okay. Both bad, both wrong, both breaches of commandments, but it is very obviously wrong to go out, more wrong to go out and murder 20 people than when your wife says, have you sort of uh, washed up? Say, yes, we haven't quite got round to it. Okay. Both wrong, but there's very obviously different degrees there. But this passage in particular points us first two to unintentional sins. Do you see that? Speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally. So in verse 13, if a whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, on and on we could go each time there's a new person being addressed, it's unintentional sins. Now what are unintentional sins? It's a strange category, isn't it? Well, to a certain extent, they are sins where we do something, we just don't realise we've done it wrong. So there's an example in chapter 5 and verse 2. Uh, chapter 5 verse 2, giving an example of these kind of sins, if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean white animal or unclean livestock, whatever it might be, or verse 3, if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort, and if it's hidden from him, and when he comes to know it, he realises his guilt, well then you go and offer one of these sin offerings. We haven't really got there yet in Leviticus, but there's various things you can touch, like a, a dead body uh, or certain types of animals, all sorts of things you can do or, or happen to you in life that make you unclean. It doesn't mean you're sinful. It just means you're, you're not allowed to come into the tabernacle until you've been cleansed. But it might be you didn't realise. Okay, you didn't realise uh, that what you were touching was unclean and you still came and worshipped. Well, you're guilty, but you, you, you didn't realise you'd done something wrong. Uh, there are certain sins we do where we just didn't realise it was wrong. Kind of like not knowing the speed limit in a country when you go on holiday and you get caught speeding. Well, I, I just didn't, I, you know, I ought to have done. It was a bit lazy, it was a bit careless, but I, I just didn't know. It's not that I decided I really want to go and break the rules here. But actually, these sins of uh, unintentional sins, or, or really literally they're called sins of wandering, are not simply when we just literally didn't know what we were doing was wrong. It also seems to include when, when we sin not because we've really planned to, but just in, in weakness, in the heat of the moment. So chapter 5, again, giving examples. I look at chapter, verse 4. If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it's hidden from him, when he comes to know and he realises guilt in any of these cases, well, you come and bring the sin offering. A rash oath. Now, you've not done that by accident. You know what you're promising. Okay, so an Israelite says, uh, Lord, I'm going to bring, on the first of every month, I'm going to bring uh, a bull to sacrifice to you. And actually, he hasn't got the funds to do that. He hasn't got any bulls. He's made this promise to the Lord, but he just can't do it. It's not that he didn't realise. I mean, he's, he's made the promise. It's not an accident. It's just that he's done it in the heat of a moment. Well, this offering tidies up that kind of sin. It's in contrast, maybe this is helpful, it's in contrast to what the Old Testament calls high-handed sins. Okay, you have unintentional sins or sins of wandering, these kind of sins, and then high-handed sins. High-handed sins, a good expression, high-handed sins. It's when it's almost you, your fist is clenched. I am going to rebel against you, Lord. I am going to break your rules. So Numbers 15, for example, uh, that murder and manslaughter are contrasted. Murder is when you plan to kill someone. I'm going to go out and I am going to kill him. I wake up in the morning and that is my plan. Manslaughter is when I've been careless. Okay? I didn't tie up my ox and it gored someone and they killed. I didn't plan to kill them. 
Sins of a high hand are deliberate sins of rebellion. But actually, most of our sin is not like that. Some of them are, and they're terrible. But most of our sin is not like that, are they? When you get to the New Testament, it's this, I think, that informs some really quite striking passages. Jesus on the cross, what does he pray for the soldiers who are killing him? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They're committing not a high-handed sin, but a, a sin of wandering, an unintentional sin. They don't know what they're doing, killing the Lord of glory. And actually, as, as Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, uh, he picks up exactly that theme. It's extraordinary, really. Just listen to this from, from Acts 3. Don't bother turning to it now. But as Peter preaches in Acts 3, he's speaking to the generation, the people who've just crucified Jesus. Uh, in Acts 3, he says this. You, you Jewish people who are, I'm preaching to, you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, i.e. free Barabbas. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we're witnesses. And then he goes on. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. It's not that it wasn't wrong. You acted in ignorance, says Peter. Perhaps even for our own lives. And this is worth turning to. Come come with me to the book of Romans in chapter 7. It's such a great... Just insight into what the Christian life is like. Uh, Romans chapter 7. Paul's speaking here, I think about what it means to be a Christian, what what life is like. Look at verse 14. Chapter 7 verse 14, it's page 943. Chapter 7 verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. Okay, the law is a good thing, comes from God. Okay, although, you know, obey your father and mother, all that sort of thing, it's good. But I'm still of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I know what I want to do, says Paul. I want to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to be patient with my children. I want to love my husband, even when he's frustrating. I want to not gossip and lie. I know what I want to do, but I don't do it. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I really don't want to gossip and lie and be impatient, but I do it, says Paul. See, Paul's saying, it's not, it's not that I get up and plan deliberately all the time to disobey God's rule with a high hand. I just, there's still sin at work in me because I've not died and gone to heaven yet. Or Christ hasn't returned and glorified my body. And so I just, uh, sin sometimes sways me aside again. That is, I think, an example of this sin of wandering. But we're still guilty for it. <laughs> See, none of this is to say that therefore it just doesn't matter. God doesn't say if you commit an unintentional sin, a sin of wandering, then don't worry about a sacrifice. Hey, come on, it's only a little. No. Jesus on the cross, they do not know what they do, but what does he pray for them? Father, forgive them. They still need forgiveness. He doesn't say they don't fully understand what they're doing, so it just doesn't matter. No, Father, forgive them. Same with Peter in his sermon. You've killed the Lord of life. You acted in ignorance, but now what must you do? You must come and find mercy. We're still guilty. Okay? Sin is objective. It varies in seriousness, but it is objective. Even if you don't feel what you've done is bad, if it's broken God's law, we're guilty, and we need a sacrifice to cover it. That's why God provides a purification offering, a sin offering, in Leviticus chapter 4. He doesn't just say, don't worry about it. 
So let me ask you some questions. First of all, do you realize the weight and seriousness of your sin, particularly if you're in some sort of position of headship, you are a husband, a father, whatever it might be, but all of us, do you realize how serious even these little sins of wandering are? Are you weighing your sin rightly? Are you even recognizing it? Okay, these, these say, you might have noticed as we read through, these offerings are brought when the person wakes up and realizes, oh, okay, he realizes he's done something wrong. Very often as Christians, I think we just get a bit generic. Oh, of course I'm a sinner. I'm a Christian. Everyone's a sinner. A bit like, you know, nobody's perfect. But we're not really conscious of specific sin. We're not thinking about ways that we have fallen short. Sin varies in its sinfulness and its seriousness, but it always stains us. But secondly, uh, this sin offering. Leviticus 4 speaks about spiritual cleansing. And essentially what it's going to say to us is, you're clean, so keep washing. Okay, you're clean, so keep washing. Uh, in Leviticus 4, you'll have seen all the way through, this offering is called a sin offering. In some ways, that's not a very helpful name for it. Uh, it's a bit general, a bit generic. Uh, this offering atones, we're told. So look at verse 26, for example. So back in Leviticus 4, sorry. When you, when you offer the goat or bull or whatever it is, it makes atonement for you and you'll be forgiven. Well, that's fine, but other offerings do that too. Okay, the, the, the offering in Leviticus 1, what we call the ascension offering or the burnt offering, that atones for you too. That pays for your sin. The one in chapter 5 we'll look at next week does it too. So we need to be more precise than just sin offering. Uh, the, the way it works, you, you'll have seen, in many ways it's similar to the other ones. You bring your animal, uh, you lay your hands on it saying that this animal is me. There's an identification between you and the, the animal. Uh, you kill the animal. Uh, bits of it are burnt. If you're the high priest, uh, if you're a high priest, a um, bit of it is burnt and then everything else is taken outside the camp. Okay, that, just, just store that in your head because that's going to be, be useful for later. Uh, verse 12 it is. Okay, if you're the high priest, the rest of the bull shall be carried outside the camp to a clean place, and there it'll be burned on a fire of wood. Anyone else, you offer certain bits, you know, the best bits, the fat, just like in the other offerings, and then the priest actually eats the rest of it. Okay, the priest gets to take it, that's in chapter 6. But actually, the, the emphasis here isn't so much on the, the dying of the animal, the sacrifice. The emphasis is on what happens to the blood afterwards. Uh, most of the passage is about what you do. You collect, the priest collects some of the blood and then has to do something with the blood. That's where the emphasis lies. As we've said already, if you're in that sort of top category, the blood gets taken into the tabernacle, into the holy place. On your little sheets, you'll see that um, although the sacrifice is made outside on the burnt offering altar, the blood is brought inside and then it's sprinkled. Uh, verse 6. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood, sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense. Whereas if you're just a pleb or less important, the blood is taken and put on the bronze altar, the less holy altar. The emphasis is on the blood and where it's put. Now it doesn't explain why, but actually as Leviticus unfolds, we get told what this means. Just flick on a little bit in Leviticus to chapter 14. And look, look what sprinkling blood does. 
Leviticus 14 and verse 25. We're not going to get into the detail. Leviticus 14, verse 25. Uh, he shall kill the lamb of the guilt offering, and the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering, put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed. Putting blood, sprinkling blood on something, cleanses it or cleanses someone. We could go on. Uh, chapter 16, verse 19, he'll sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it. Sprinkling blood cleans things. And children, normally, if you, get, if, you cut your, if you get a nosebleed and it goes on your T-shirt, it stains, doesn't it? It makes something dirty. But in the Bible, weirdly, in Leviticus, when you put blood on something, it cleans it. That's what's going on. It, this, it, and there's another way you can actually translate the word. This is the purification offering. It is a cleaning offering. Trying to sort of work out how to remember these offerings in Leviticus. And we, we've been doing ABC. So Leviticus 1, the first offering is the ascension offering, okay, where your sin is atoned for and you ascend into God's presence. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Leviticus 2 okay, is the bring a gift offering. You bring something to give to God, grain or whatever it might be, AB. Leviticus 3 was the come and eat offering. It's one where you eat the meal. It's like communion. Leviticus 4, here we are. We're on to D. Okay, this is the detergent offering. Working hard on this all week. Okay? It cleanses. It's about cleansing. The emphasis isn't on turning aside God's anger, here, true though that is, but on cleansing you. Spiritual detergent. Now, just notice this. I've kept saying that it cleanses us. And in fact, we, we saw, as we read through, you will be forgiven. But where does the blood go? The blood doesn't go on the person, does it? They're forgiven, but where does the blood go? The blood actually goes on the tent on the tabernacle various parts of it why why is it that it's the tabernacle that's being cleansed not the person because the person who sinned it's not the tabernacle it's not the altar that's done anything wrong okay all the curtain just lying around aren't they and once they're cleansed why is it that you are forgiven well just think about the symbolism who are you at the church <laughs> who are you you are the temple of god the temple is just a tabernacle, same thing. You're the tabernacle of God. You are God's dwelling place. I think the reason that the blood is put on the, the tabernacle and then the person is told they're forgiven is it's sort of prophesying what's going to happen. At the moment, God dwells in a tent in the days of Leviticus. And so it needs cleaning up. As we, as we sin, as the people sin, sorry, God's dwelling place needs cleaning so they can keep coming back into him, to, to meet him. But ultimately, God's not going to dwell in a tabernacle, meaning a literal tent. He's going to dwell in the church, the people. You are the real temple. You are the real tabernacle. God is going to dwell in you. So it's you who need cleansing, God is saying to the people. One day, it's going to be much better. It's much more glorious to live now than in the days of Leviticus. It'd be great to see a tabernacle, wouldn't it, or a temple. But far more glorious that God's glory spirit dwells in you, the church. And so... What does the New Testament do with this offering? Well, it applies in two ways. I think two really important ways as we come to a close. Come to the book of Hebrews, which is almost like a commentary on Leviticus. Hebrews 13. See if you recognize this language. Hebrews 13 is the last chapter. Page 1009. Uh, Hebrews 13 and verse 10. 
Let me read from verse 11, actually. Hebrews 13, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, there we go, are burned outside the camp. Do you remember that? Okay, animal dies, the blood's brought into the bit, and they're burnt outside the camp. I flagged it earlier. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Jesus wasn't crucified in Jerusalem or in the temple, was he? He in God's presence. He was crucified outside the city on a hill in order to sanctify, to cleanse the people through his own blood. The, the sin offering, the purification offering, this detergent offering, points forward, first and foremost, to Jesus cleansing you. Children, if you, when it comes to cleaning a house, spring cleaning, have you seen those adverts uh, on television where there's like a really dirty oven and then some, or a work service, and then someone sprays some detergent on, sprays a bottle, and it just wipes shiny clean? Have you seen those sort of, And suddenly it's really clean. <coughs> Well, the Bible tells us we're dirty. We need cleaning. We need something sprayed on us. What do we need to spray on us? The blood of Jesus. And as he died, he cleansed us once and for all. Do you feel dirty? Do you feel uh, the stain of sin? Jesus washed you completely clean, whiter than white, dazzlingly white. If you're not a Christian, this is your only hope. This is the only way to get rid of that stain of sin, that the, the corruption. That there's different pictures of sin in the Bible, but actually the, the dirt picture, the pollution picture, is a powerful one. Some of you will feel this. It's not so much you feel objectively guilty, you just feel dirty before God. How often it is sexual sin that, that makes us feel this kind of pollution. Jesus washes you clean, purifies you. He is spiritual detergent. So just flick a couple of books onwards to the book of 1 John. Okay, we're not going to go anywhere else. 1 John. In the back of your head, they might be saying, well, okay, but all this, all this offering, Leviticus 4, was about unintentional sins. But, but look at 1 John. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 7. We walk in the light as he's in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And here's the key bit. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. There's the blood cleansing from all sin. Not just from sins of wandering. Not just from sins where I act, but all sin. If I come to him in repentance and faith, all sin is cleansed. Fully and finally. We don't clean ourselves up. He cleanses us. Around the house, you know, you put a rug over a, a stain, a coffee on the, on the floor, or kid's handprints, so you kind of move the sofa in front of it. We try and cover it up. We can't do that with our spiritual sin. But Jesus cleanses you fully and finally. Whatever you've done, be it 10 years ago or 10 minutes ago, Jesus cleanses you. In his grace and his full and final. And there's still more. Leviticus doesn't just speak to us about the once and for all final sacrifice, the full and complete work of Christ. It does speak to us about that, but it speaks to us about more than just that. See, if Leviticus was just about Christ and how he dies for us, if it was just a big visual aid, then we'd read it, and all we'd end up saying is, well, hooray for Jesus, he's done it all, we can sort of forget about it. And you hear sermon series, well, that's it. You know, Jesus is the true sin offering, hooray for Jesus, full stop. But it speaks to us about more than just that. Think about Moses. Okay? A tr- Moses is a true believer, isn't he? Okay? Moses is going to be in heaven, he's as saved as you or I. When Moses commits one of these sins and thinks, right, I need to sacrifice something, what does he think? Is he thinking, oh no, I now need to go and sacrifice a goat, because if I don't, I'm not going to heaven. Is he thinking, I've committed one of these sins of wandering, 
And until I can run back into the tabernacle, kill the goat, sprinkle the blood around the place, if I die, I'm lost. So he runs into the tabernacle, sacrifices it, the blood puts it around. Oh, I'm okay. Walks outside, stubs his toe, swears, oh no, I'm lost again. Right, pegs it back inside, I've got to do it again. No. Moses, the moment he believed, well, that might be, fully and finally saved, just like you and me. He was cleansed by the blood of Christ, fully and finally. And yet he still had to keep bringing the, the sin offering. Why? Because the sin offering is to teach us not just about the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, but also about the continual ongoing life of confession and finding, enjoying, renewing ourselves in that forgiveness. And look how one John goes on. We've been cleansed, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. It's like Hebrews 13, once and for all, done, dusted, brilliant. But verse 8, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. I'm cleansed, but I still need cleaning. Not because I'm not saved and then saved and then not saved and saved. I'm fully and finally cleansed when I become a Christian. Christ died once and for all for sins. But my ongoing life with Christ, my holiness, if you like, my sanctification is a process. So a healthy Christian keeps coming, confessing our sins, and God again says, you're forgiven. Not because we're jumping in and out of grace. Moses isn't a Roman Catholic. Leviticus isn't a Roman Catholic book that then gets corrected by Hebrews and turned Protestant or something, evangelical. The whole Bible is one evangelical gospel. But the Christian life, healthy Christian life, is one of confessing our sins and God forgiving us. That's why in your own personal life, I've asked you earlier, are you confessing real sin, specific sin, concrete sin, not just generic, Lord, I'm a sinner, you know, have mercy on me. That's why when we meet together on a Sunday for worship, we confess our sins week in, week out. It's not undermining the full cleansing. It's reminding us that a healthy relationship with God relies on us continually bringing ourselves to him and asking for forgiveness. I think John probably has in mind that instant that only he records in his gospel. One John written by the same guy who wrote John's Gospel. Do you remember just before Jesus dies, he washes the disciples' feet. And Peter says, why are you washing our feet? And they have a whole conversation about it. And, and, and Peter works out that it's about the, the picture of being washed of his sin. So he says to Jesus, no, wash all of me. And Jesus said, you don't need all, you don't need all of you washed again. You're clean, Peter, but I'm going to wash your feet. John, if you've been really dirty, if I've ever been really, 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 really dirty, there's one time the dirtiest I've ever been in my life. I hadn't, I, was, I hadn't washed for two weeks, okay? Covered in mud. After a long story, I'm not going to tell you it now. No bars, no showers for two weeks, okay? Just caked in mud and scum, and I stank to high heaven. Absolutely disgusting. Gone in the bath, all came off, okay? Clean at last. I hadn't really eaten much for those weeks either. And so I went down and said, just stuff my face. Okay, so hungry. And look in the mirror, I saw food all over my face. What do I have to do? I didn't have to, didn't have to go and get in the whole bath again and cover myself with water again. I just had to get a flannel and wash again. It's a bit like that with our sin. When you put your trust in Christ, you're fully forgiven. But it's right that we come and ask week by week for further forgiveness. Specific washing, if you like, washing our feet. And the great news, verse 9 if we confess our sins, what does the verse say? God is merciful and forgiving, compassionate and gracious, and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not what it says, is it? What does the verse say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Isn't that interesting? Not merciful and gracious, faithful and just. Why will God forgive you? 
because he is just, because he has promised he must keep his word. And if you're united to Christ, you've been fully cleansed at the cross. So it would be unjust of God not to forgive you when you confess. It would be unfaithful of him to his word. He just can't fail to forgive us. Even God's justice is on your side now. It's not that his justice is trying to punish you and his mercy is trying to forgive you and he kind of hope for the mercy wins. Even his justice says, no, this person is united to Christ. He's been cleansed, so I must keep forgiving him. God is bound by his justice to keep cleansing you. So come to him for cleansing. He wants to wash you clean of your sin in your experience, in your own life, more than you want rid of it. He is certain to forgive you. So don't hide your sin away. Don't put the carpet over it. Shove the sofa in front of it. It is bad for you. It's serious. We saw that in Leviticus. But bring it to him and he promises because of the work of Christ, he will not just forgive but cleanse the true sin offering. Let's pray before we come to the table that echoes that promise. Father, cleanse us, we pray, in faithfulness to the sacrifice of Christ. Father, we are sorry for our sin. We repent of it, but we repent of the fact that we don't even repent properly. We confess the fact that we do not confess heart, soul, mind, and strength. We treat our sin too lightly. We don't see it. We don't realize it. But we praise you that Christ has cleansed us from every stain. And so, Lord, as we come to you again, as we approach your table, we ask that that we would know your smile and your justice as you remain faithful to your promise to cleanse us from every stain. Father, be good to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.